I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. You know, everything, everybody's worked with the person that can rally the resources, right? And they're just like a pleasure to work with. And then you've also worked with the people who are like really, really smart, but in, in Netflix terms, they would be brilliant jerks, right? And we don't like, people don't like working with them. And you might be able to get one thing done if you're a brilliant jerk, but you can't sustain a career by being a brilliant jerk. Kim Stevenson has enjoyed a long and successful career in the ever-changing information technology field, having worked in executive roles at IBM, Intel, EDS, and Hewlett-Packard Enterprise. She says the biggest mistake businesses make around technology purchase decisions is not focusing on the business outcome. Good leaders use technology in a way which will help customers and be a competitive advantage for them. Kim cites the differences in gender communication styles, the feminine and the masculine, begin during our childhood with the more feminine style being collaborative and the masculine one being more of a problem-solving approach. Enjoy this wonderful podcast with Kim Stevenson. I want to welcome today Kim Stevenson to Leading She. Welcome, Kim. Thanks, Susan. Glad to be here. Yes, I'm glad to have you here as a guest. Kim Stevenson is a business executive who has deep experience in business strategy and technology innovation. She describes herself on Twitter as a passionate tech leader driving digital transformation, leading outstanding business results. She has held leadership positions in some of the largest technology brands in the world, including her most recent roles as Senior Vice President and General Manager at NetApp and Lenovo as well as Chief Operating Officer and Chief Information Officer roles at Intel, IBM, EDS, and Hewlett-Packard Enterprise. She has served on several public and private board of directors, including Cloudera, Riverbed Technology, Boston Private Financial Holdings, Inc., and the National Center for Women in IT. She currently serves on the board for MyTech Solutions, Inc. and Skyworks Solutions, Inc. and on the advisory board of TrueU, a privately held software company. She has led large-scale, highly complex product technology and IT organizations and is an expert in digital IT and business transformation. She is highly regarded for embracing disruptive change, resulting in significant performance improvement while never losing sight of customers' needs. Kim is a vocal advocate for women in leadership and has a deep commitment for developing leaders, as well as increasing diversity in the workplace. She is consistently recognized for her leadership and technology contributions. She has won numerous awards, most recently the HMG Strategy 2021 Global Leadership Institute's Leading into the C-Suite Award. Technology Magazine's number 19 of Top 100 Women in Technology 2021, and Constellation's 2020 Business Transformation BT150 Award. Kim holds an MBA from Cornell and a Bachelor of Science from Northeastern University. So welcome again, Kim. Impressive career. <laughs> Thanks, Susan. Yeah. Well, uh, tell us any highlights of your career. You've, you've been a tech expert and been recognized in your field. You've had a long career like I have. Um, any highlights or, you know, I know you mentioned in one of the my research, you were in accounting for a while and you knew that is not what you wanted to do, but you knew this is what you wanted to do. So tell me about, you know, some, you know, cliff notes of your career summary of it. Uh, any highlights? Sure. You know, the, um, I'll say the ironic thing looking back over a 35 year career is that some of my favorite jobs, um, didn't exist when I started my career. There was no such thing as a CIO when I started my career. And my first job in IT was in the data processing department, right? Which doesn't exist anymore. And so one thing with technology is that it's a constant um, change. The the industry changes, the jobs evolve and, and roles. And so throughout my career, I have um, really embraced that change and, you know, strived to take a little bit of risk in every job transition, whether it was a transition I initiated or whether it's a transition that, you know, was initiated because the company was sold, the department got reorganized, you know, a, a lot of times you're not in control of the changes that happen around you, but you can take advantage of those changes when they happen. 
Mm -hmm. And take advantage of those changes when they happen. I agree with you there. And you said you take a risk when this happens. And um, I know you've said there are many, many changes throughout our career. Perhaps our boss leaves, our company is sold, or something happens which is outside of our control. And and you say you take a risk. Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I'll give you an example. So I, I worked for um, EDS, mm-hmm. um, which was an IT outsourcing company. I had fairly significant um, role there, was one of the top uh, 100 leaders in the company. And um, we were attempting to acquire assets. Um, and in the process of that, HP acquired us. Yes. So, so all of a sudden, like you were running down one path, going to take the company one direction and, you know, the exact opposite thing happens. And so there were a lot of changes that came, you know, pretty much you could rationalize if you're going to be acquired, you're going to get changes. Um, But when all of a sudden we started to deviate from the core values Mm. of the company because the core values of HP were taking over again, not good, not bad, just different. Mm -hmm. And, and I realized pretty quickly that, that set of values wasn't going to be an environment where I thrived in. And um, so, so I left after one year. Um, So I I had made a commitment and I always follow through on my commitments. I didn't like that one year, but I'd made a commitment. I would stay through the transition period. And I did. And then um, I had always been on the side of it. That was, we were, developing product or developing services for internal IT organizations. They were our customers. And when I decided I would leave, I decided, well, I should become my customer. You know, that would be a great way to sort of get a 360 degree view of this industry. And so I went to Intel and, you know, I, I thought, I have been developing products and services for these customers for, you know, 20 years. I know what they need. Yeah. And in that first year, I can't tell you the number of days I would go home and think, what was I thinking? This wouldn't work in this environment. Um, and so it really was a really good learning experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a very different type of job. It, it wasn't, you know, the business unit leader, it was internal support job. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people say that's, that's not necessarily a good move, but it was a great move for me because it developed my perspective um, to be able to see things from 360 degree mm-hmm. angles, different audiences. Yeah. It sounds like you were at ED- EDS. Um, it was sold to HP. Do I have that right? Mm-hmm. And then you saw what kind of the writing on the wall, maybe your values didn't align with with the companies, and I've told women in the podcast, on this podcast, and other women have said the same thing. It's a non-starter if your personal values don't really match that of the company. And so you really, and in my opinion, you have to leave. You have to find another place. But how would you, yeah. what advice would you give women who are thinking about leaving and their personal values as opposed to their companies? What would you say? How, how do you identify that? Yeah. So one, I 100% agree with that. Your values, if your values match the company's values, you will excel through your job because mm-hmm. it just, you don't, you have no friction in the process of getting things done. If they don't align, it, again, I'm, I'm not about it's good or bad. It's just, if they don't align, we just have different values then there's so much friction. You just cannot plow your way through it, no matter how good you are at your functional job. And so when I look at jobs now, look, I had to learn that lesson the hard way, right? (laughs) I had to learn that lesson by being acquired. I didn't know that beforehand. Um, But then I went to Intel and my values did align. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was so easy to get things done because this core value system was in place that aligned perfectly with mine. Um, You didn't have resistance, right? You didn't have resistance from them. Yep. And so I always tell people when you're looking for a job, no matter what type of job it is, accountant, engineer, Mm -hmm. lawyer, you know, whatever, 
you, you have a functional set of skills that like you want to use and deploy. You know, I want to be a good accountant and therefore this job needs to have this kind of scope, whatever it is. But then there's the cultural side of the company. And I find most people don't spend enough time on the culture. So the scope of your job will change, you know, guaranteed it will change, mm -hmm. right? The work environment, change, but the, the culture of companies doesn't change very rapidly. It slowly evolves. And so um, you really have to talk to people and spend a lot of time with sort of the unwritten rules of the company. How do things get done? Who's really in charge? Yep. What are the decision-making processes? Those right. kinds of questions become very, very important whether or not you can be successful in the job, mm -hmm. despite what your functional skills might be. Yeah. So do your research, really understand what you're getting into as much as you can, you know, get the what I would call street talk on the company. Talk That's to right. people that work there that, you know, hey, off the record, you, you got to tell me how, what what it's like here. Will I be happy here? That kind of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, let me talk about your industry a bit before we get into some of my other questions. Uh, uh, your business technology, um, this industry, as you say, you know, this industry, probably more than any other industry that I can think of, changes every day and has been for many years. And uh, I'm a little older than you. I've been at this a little longer. Um, when I began in the business, I managed a department within a big company. We had one computer in that department. Now, this is 1980. Okay, so you can you'll have a perspective on this. And I think that computer was a monochrome screen, very slow. The company had a big computer room with a lot of large uh, computer pieces, hardware, probably IBM equipment, I would assume. Um, probably. Yeah. And there was <laughs> cool air coming from the floor to keep the uh, machines cool and, you know, keep the data safe. No cell phones. There was no voicemail. There were no fax machines at that time. Um, and as baby boomers, and you and I are in that category. I mean, look at all the, ch I'm getting chills. Look at all the changes that have happened, you know, and how we've adapted. You're kind of a, you're a tech person. You're, that's how you're naturally wired. I, I tend to be a techie person too. And so I've embraced as much as I can. I'm a kind of a gadget junkie, but talk about the business and how it's changed. And I've got a follow-up question about uh, mistakes uh, companies might be making, but talk about just over the last 20 years, if you could summarize what you would say about <laughs> changes in technology. Yeah. So, so techno every company today is a technology company, right? So they're, they're in the tech industry. We make products that are consumed and used by other industries. But if you look at the leaders in every industry, it's because they use technology in a way that creates a competitive advantage for them. And I really believe that. And so uh, if you look back over the last 20 years, right, what happens is there's waves of big technological shifts. And um, so Google, I always refer to the world as, you know, BG and AG, before Google and after Google. Yeah. Like the world is fundamentally different mm -hmm. because we can search and get answers for things, right? Right. And, um, you know, PCs, when, when I started my career season, there was a department PC and it wasn't movable. It was plugged into the wall, yep. you know, it was big. Um, I got to work on the first, I always consider this sort of a pivotal job in my career, the first, what was to be portable computer. And um, we were very proud of this. It weighed 26 and a half pounds. You had to put it on a luggage rack with a bungee cord to move it. It did not have a battery. You had to plug it into the wall. You could move it. That was a big deal. You could move it. But, you know, and it had a nine inch glass plasma display, which if you know what that is, it's mm -hmm. that orange writing, you know, if it's yes. black background or orange writing, it's like really hard to see, especially if you're old. Um, and, you know, we were so proud of this. Now this product did not sell well. And, um, but we learned so much that then the next generation became what, what you to know today as a laptop, yeah. right? Um, still weighed 13 pounds, but, you know, it had a battery and it had a, right. you know, 12 inch display and, you know, so things have, you know, you, even in 
developing products that don't sell well, you know, uh, you learn something. And if you can apply that learning, you can take it to the next generation. And you'll find that in technology companies, particularly in semiconductor companies, because we think 10 years out, you know, we're building factories that are going to produce um, semiconductor chips for the next 10 years. And it's, you know, a multi-billion dollar investment. You have to sort of predict and so that's, to me, what's been so exciting about my, my career. I could see the laptop coming. I could see mobile phones coming, mm-hmm. right? I could see um, what 5G would do to our ability to broadcast different types of media. Um, you know, live sports is, is one of the things mm-hmm. that I, you know, think is going to be so cool as 5G takes over yeah. because you can freeze frame, you can, you know, rewind, you can do all this stuff on your phone and it doesn't cost that much. What you find in technology is, you know, it's coming because at the initial phase, it is so expensive. It's not you're not able to commercialize it. So then all you do is work on bringing the cost down, right? right? Make it cheaper, right? Right. Shrinking the platform size, moving it to software, all these things help take cost out and then it makes it commercial, uh, commercially available. Mm-hmm. Now, the next, the next big way that's going to change, you know, everything about how we work and live is the artificial intelligence mm. space. And, you know, everybody is using artificial intelligence today because there's a lot of different techniques. Um, so if you call into a, a call center, and it's an automated um, agent. That's artificial intelligence behind that. If you do a, a chat bot on, you know, if you're inquiring, I was inquiring about a, a, a support area the other day and then doing with this chat bot, that's automated intelligence yeah. behind that. So everybody's yeah. using it, but it gets very, very, the potential is it can get very, very sophisticated and you know, pattern recognition is sort of one of the underlying um, things. And you can do things with data because you have the data that you just could never see those patterns before because you weren't able to analyze that much yeah. data and information. So cool. Well, um, I'd like to, if you can, kind of summarize, you know, what, what do you think uh, in the last, say, five years or uh, businesses have made mistakes? technology-wise, and what do they really need to make sure they understand as they go forward? And it's going to vary by industry, by company, of course, but... Yeah, sure. Yeah. It, look, I think the 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 biggest mistake most companies make is they buy technology for the sake of technology. It's a mm-hmm. cool gadget. It's a cool widget. Yeah. You should never buy technology for the technology. You should always buy it because you're trying to create a business outcome and... So therefore, it means you'll have to change your business processes to mm. support that particular outcome. And I'll give you an example. Yeah, um, I was working, um, I had a team working on sort of some early AI kind of stuff, machine learning. Like, could we um, reach customers in a different way to increase our, our win rate? That was, that was the question. And so we developed a um, uh, machine learning model that we put a lot of factors in and we said, we went to the inside sales team and we said, Hey, we have this great model. We can help you improve your win rate. And um, you just have to do the work differently. And the manager of the inside call center told me, are you freaking crazy? Why would I do that? I'm on commission. This I've, I've got my team deployed the way every call center in the world's deployed. They're deployed by territory. You know, you got big accounts. They call them big accounts. They call them medium accounts. These guys do this, that. And we're like, yeah, but that, that isn't the most efficient way because we have all this data. And if you do it this way, you call by the highest propensity to win. It doesn't really matter what size the company is. And um, he's like, no way, no way. And so what we find that, so we spent a quarter arguing about, like, I think you should change. You say, you don't get paid the way I get paid. So no, I'm not going to change. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, I finally said, all right, how about you give me your worst performing agents? Just give me, you know, and for one quarter, we're going to have the worst performing agents use this model. Mm. And if their performance gets better, then you can decide whether this is worth using or not. And so he said, okay, you know, because basically he wasn't losing anything. Those people weren't going to make quota anyway. 
Right. And um, and in 90 days, um, their performance, they performed 150% to plan. Oh, wow. Because they had information that really was critical to understand of would this customer buy? And, um, and you can, you, everybody's been on the other side of that when you're on Amazon and they're saying, oh, here are the special things for you. And you're like, I bought that like five days ago. I'm not buying it again. Why you, you that recommendation engine is right. an artificial intelligence tool, but it doesn't have enough information. Um, and so, you know, the more data sources you can add into these things, the better. And ultimately the entire inside sales took about two years, but the entire inside sales team was converted to this model to use the data in a way that's different, but it was just so hard because the pay structures, the reward systems, like mm-hmm. all these things didn't support driving change. Yeah. And, and that's the mistake companies make yeah. with technology. Yeah, it makes sense. Let's move on to um, where did you grow up? I know some of this, but where did you grow up? Tell me about your family, siblings. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. So I'm one of four. I grew up in Michigan, um, sort of typical Midwest company. My parents um, were both business owners. So probably for the time, my mother being her own business owner was unusual. Um, But for me, that was the norm, right? So I never thought I wouldn't be in business working because that was what normal was to me. Yeah, Mm -hmm. right. Right. So, um, and my, my parents, my mother owned what we call the Michigan, a party store, which is a small grocery that sells beer, wine, cigarettes, milk, bread. Those mm-hmm. were kind of the staples. Yeah. And then my dad owned across the parking lot. My dad owned the local bar, right? Where everybody came in to drink or cash their paychecks or um, whatever. And so as, as kids, we, on the weekends, we had to go with either mom or dad to work in you know, either Hmm. place. And so I learned pretty quickly that I didn't like cleaning bar bathrooms and, you know, (laughs) empty and half empty, stinky beer bottles. And so I started doing, um, the banking for my dad. Oh, right. And, um, uh, and with my mom too. And so my mom was five foot two red hair and people would write checks and they would bounce. And so, um, because you'd get fees and they, it was a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. My mother would um, uh, check the balances for certain people because she knew they were struggling and she wouldn't deposit their check if it was going to bounce and they were going to get charged the fee. So she would take us in the car and she would drive to these people's houses and she'd go knock on the door and she'd say, Hey, your check is going to bounce. I need you to pay me in cash. <laughs> Can you imagine doing yeah. that today? <laughs> yeah. Um, Pretty scary. Most, most people would say, I get paid on Friday, I'll come in or do this or that. She'd work an arrangement, right? Mm-hmm. And and they would. Yeah. Very, very, very few ever really um, screwed her. Or if they had to, it was like with great apology. And there was mm-hmm. always sort of a plan. A financial situation, fix, yeah. Fix, fix it, yeah. And um, I learned, you know, a lot about sort of people's motivation, and, you know, people do want to do the right thing, but you'll have to give them the opportunity, mm-hmm. right? You could have deposited the check. They could have got another $25 fee that just digs them deeper into the hole. Like you have to try to help them right. get, get out of that. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, I sort of approached my leadership style in that way too, right? That, yeah. I, I remember that. want to do the right thing. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it was true back then. I think it's true today. But yeah, back then it was like check bounced. But I remember you saying in one of the um, some of my research, you said you remember her kindness, but firmness yes. around that. And that's yeah. you've used that in your career. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like but she was very clear when she knocked on your door, you owed her money. <laughs> Here comes the short red-haired lady. She's coming to collect, yeah. right? I mean, she, yeah, yeah. And so uh, it was, yeah. um, you know, she was very firm. We're going to yeah. work a way out of it, but we're going to work it out. Right? Yeah, no, she's owed and she's it's due. And, you know, that I think it's, it seems very bold, but I can see how you would you would learn from that and, and apply mm-hmm. it in your career. Um, you have some advice for women around their performance reviews. Um what would you say to a, a you know, young woman, 35 years old, uh, January, you know, one 
and she's going to be working all year her reviews in December. What would you say to her about her performance reviews? Well, you just hit the nail on the head, Susan. It's January 1 that yes. it starts, yes. right? So review implies backward looking, right? But, but you proactively manage your review. So the beginning of the review cycle, I always say, sit down with your boss, come prepared, right? Say, this is what I really think needs to be done. Do you agree, Mr. Boss or Miss Boss? And here's what good looks like. You know, this would be exceeding performance, this would be meeting performance, and this would be missing performance. And I'm willing to sign up for those measures and those goals. And are you in, right? And and your, when your boss will typically go, wow, this person's really got it together because they're making my job easy, right? They're, they're laying it out, they're putting it in. And then they'll have something to add to and complement that. And then sort of once a quarter, um, you be in charge. Yeah. Right. So I always believe you manage your career, right. you not own somebody it. else, right? right? Mm -hmm. And so once a quarter, have that one-on-one -on -one, um, where you're prepared and saying, hey, this is how the last quarter went. Mm -hmm. um, we learned this, we got this done, you know, and this, and now let's, now in the next quarter, this is what's coming up. Here's how we're going to go about it. Here's what needs to get done. This is the help I need. These are the resources at play, um, et cetera. And if you do that every quarter, um, you know, you, one, you're not going to have any surprises. I'm big on no surprises. Mm -hmm. And two, um, at the end, you write your own review. You keep notes from those four sessions, right? You write your own review. It can be short bulleted points. It can be lengthy, whatever's appropriate for your company. And then, you know, you hand it to your boss and say, this is how, um, I think the year went. And now let's spend our time talking about the next year and buy growth opportunities, et cetera, right? So spend that, look back, wrap it up quickly, celebrate the accomplishments, but focus then on where do you take this? Mm -hmm. And um, because that's where the boss's head is, right? Yeah. They've been working on that next year plan. They've got to deploy it now. They've got, there's a whole bunch of things that um, if you wait till the end of a performance review, there really isn't time for the performance review. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just, I think you can get way ahead of it, make the job for your boss very, very easy and you right. will stand out. Like nobody does it. Nobody, I, nobody does that. I mean, the, the classic is, you know, January 1st, you're just like, I hope they, I hope he thinks I've done a good job and you don't yeah. talk all year. And then December comes, you know, you have some things in the review that you didn't even know he thought. Uh, he's not giving you credit for what you did. And you may even not be getting the kind of increase in your salary that you deserve, right? That's right. That's right. And um, and let's, let's be clear. The salary decisions are dependent on what the boss thinks you did. Mm -hmm. Right. And they don't live with you every day. No. They don't know what goes, you know, they don't know the obstacles that you had to overcome to get something done. And I think those are worth talking about. So I always talk about there's what got done and then there's how it got done, right? Um, and some things are harder than other things because of, of, of how it needs to get done, right? Were the resources there, right? Is it the first time the company's ever approached this kind of topic? Um, mm -hmm. uh, those kinds of things matter. And so, um, you know, everything, everybody's worked with the person that can rally the resources, right? And they're just like a pleasure to work with. And then you've also worked with the people who are like, really, really smart, but in, in Netflix terms, they would be brilliant jerks, right? Yeah. And we don't like, people don't like working with them. Yeah. And you might be able to get one thing done if you're a brilliant jerk, but you can't sustain a career by being a brilliant jerk, right? Yeah. So you have to work well with people. Yeah. They're toxic, uh, you know, in the system. We'll, we'll come to the team, team play idea, but, you know, I think it's really about women, having their voice, owning their career, speaking up. And a lot of times we sit back and wait to be patted on the head like you're doing a good job, keep doing what you're doing. And this is really about being vocal and bold and, and, and saying, here's what I did. He's not there with you all the time. She is not there with you all the time. You have to take responsibility for keeping track and don't be afraid to blow your own horn, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. And and look, I see there's there's 
um, really effective ways to blow your own horn. And then there's ineffective ways, Mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, The most effective that I've found is when you focus on the result, right? And the role you played in the result versus if you emphasize, I did X, I did Y, I did blah, blah, then they they care about the result, right? Your shareholders, if you just think about a company, your shareholders care about the performance of the company and the results the company delivers. And so if you focus on the results first and then you second, mm-hmm. um, that to me is more effective than focusing on, um, you, yeah. you know, you first. I, I had a, a really good friend once tell me, we were working, we were good friends before we started working on a project together. We started working on a project together and I did the readout of the project at the end and what went well. And, and he was so mad at me afterwards. And I was like, I couldn't understand why. And he, he said, I counted, you used the word I 27 times in that presentation. You didn't do a single thing without me. We did it all together. And I didn't realize I felt horrible then. Yeah. I did not realize that I was doing that, right? Yeah. And um, so thank God he told me and then I could, I could correct. But, it, you know, it was, a, it was a real lesson for me mm-hmm. to think about, you know, the other people involved first mm-hmm. and then you second, right? And yeah, yeah, I like I like that. And I think I have tended to do that too. And that's good feedback for you. We've talked in the podcast about sometimes people have the boldness to tell you feedback you need to hear. And you need yep. to listen and you need to like accept it with an open mind. And you're like, you know what? I was, I did say I a lot. I did not give credit to the team, you know, as maybe as much as I could have. So then you make changes. You know, and we talked about team play. It's a good segue to do that. Um, I have found in my career that some of the most competitive, driven people, employees, are just winners. Um, but many times they're not always really good team players. You know, uh, they're they're individually focused. My results, I did this, I did that. And so sometimes those folks are not the best team players. Um and then you've got the, you know, say really good team players that maybe are mediocre employees. They don't have that winning attitude. What would you say about teams and working as a team and getting the good results with a team when you've got some really strong people, but they're less team focused? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think that um, in most companies, the predominant organizational structure is a work group, not a team. And a work group is as not as effective. Um, a work group would be, you know, have individual goals, have individual accountability. Um, these things all sound good, right? Um, but a team is mutual accountability, right? It's individual goals that lead to the team goal. And, but you're accountable to the team goal. It's clarity of roles and responsibilities that um, invite, if I do a sports analogy, you know, um, I played a lot of softball growing up and mm-hmm. I was always um, the leadoff batter. And my job was not to hit a home run. Now, there, trust me, I thought I could. And, but you swing for the fences, you strike out more than if you just try to get on base, right? Mm-hmm. And when I learned my role, which was to get on base and then the cleanup hitter, their job was to get me home, right? Yeah. My job was to get on base. So I ended up with more walks than anybody on the team. Patience, I had to wait out the pitches, right? I, I could have swung in a lot of things, but would we as accomplish the goal of the team, which was to score? No, because I would have struck out more versus get on base. My batting um, on base percentage was 750, um, which is huge, right? But my hitting percentage (laughs) was like 300. (laughs) So because I took a lot of walks, right? Yeah, but I think that's a male thing, don't you? Like a a male thing, they want to like, it's like driving a ball 300, you know, in golf. You know, they want to hit it and get, you know, get the glory of it going past the fences and all that. 
I, I think, and maybe this is too general to be the truth, but women's like, okay, here's the goal. I'm just going to get on base. I'm not going to go for the fences. Right. 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 Yeah. And you can be good. Right. Um, I mean, I made the all-star team. I mean, I wasn't considered a slack player, right. I was considered yeah. a good player. Um, so you can be good. And I think it goes back to, um, and you, you read a lot about this in leadership, but women are generally better at relationships mm-hmm. and men play to win or lose. So in, in, in a women's game, you, you can be, you can have a win-win outcome. And in a man's game, you usually have a win-lose outcome. Mm-hmm. And, and look for business today, when you think about the extended ecosystems and partnerships you need to succeed, um, whether whether in the company or you know outside of the company, you need to play a lot of win-win games. Yeah. And and so you have to to think about um, how do you make that happen because win-lose games disenfranchise people. Mm-hmm. Right. And, yeah, it does. Um, yeah. No, people don't feel good. The losers don't feel good. They don't feel like it's a real, you know, win-win's always always best. Um, let me ask you about, you've, you've worked for some really big companies, IBM, Intel, HP, EDS. I mean, and you've been at this for a long time. What would you say about, um, what you've seen over the years in terms of, um, gender, uh, diversity around gender, uh, in companies, how things were say 20 years ago, even 30 years ago, and how they are now. What what do you see in these big companies? Yeah. Well, when I, Susan, when I started, um, I was young, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years into my career, and I had the opportunity to be um, a, a technical assistant to one of our um, uh, executive vice presidents at, at IBM. And th- this was like, a grooming type of job, but you are really a gopher. I mean, that's really, I took notes. I I ran down the hall and I gave the notes to certain people, you know, it was a gopher job. But so I had a lot of time in that. I'd sit in the back room, back of the room in a lot of these meetings. And I noticed there were a lot of women in IBM. um, I was in the IBM software division at the time. There were a lot of women in leadership in the IBM software division. Um, And they all looked alike. They had the same haircut. They wore the same dark suits with the same little bow ties and white shirts. And, you know, they they had the same shoes and I'm young and I'm sitting back there and going, I am not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just not going to do that. I, I'm not going to dress like everybody else. I'm not going to cut my hair the way everybody else does. And I, I sort of knew then that, um, I would have to sort of, um, be a path clearer for others, right? And um, and and I do think that's sort of my generation's responsibility for women is to clear the path and make it easier for the next generation, which means you got to fight a few battles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I have two holes in my ear when you know that was really not popular at the time, right? Um, you mean uh, complying and- with the dress? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but, uh, but I always learned to speak my mind too. Yes. And um, I, I, I worked for this EVP and I was going to, we worked a lot of hours, right? I mean, a lot of hours. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was going to go to Atlantic city for the weekend and um, it was Friday. Like we, my friends and stuff all wanted to leave by five 30. So we had to be off work by five and um of course she calls a meeting and she needs me like indefinitely. Like I didn't even know when I was going to be able to leave. And so I told her, I said, Hey, look, I have plans for the weekend. I'm going to Atlantic city and uh, I need to leave by five 30. So I, I sort of gave myself an extra half hour. Right. And that was my compromise that I would go stay a little longer, but I still had to leave by then. And uh, she was not really that understanding. And I said, well, look, if I go and I win, I'm not coming back on Monday. Yeah. <laughs> and she, she was pretty confident I wasn't going to win. That I certainly didn't have enough money to play to yeah. um, change my outcome. But she then realized how important it was to me to be able to do. And um, she said, okay, well, we'll, we'll get done by 530, but I probably need to talk to you on Sunday. And yeah. I was like, okay, that's a compromise. That's a compromise and stuff. And so, but you, know, you do have to learn to stick up for yourself and, 
And I left there that day thinking, yeah, I'm probably getting fired on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> well, there but wasn't. I didn't. She really respected at the end. She respected my, you know, um, openness, but also, you know, firmness. Your that individuality. Yeah, I guess. This was going to happen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. it was a time when the IBM, you know, uniform was there, you know, where it's like yeah. mostly men there. Right. And uh, they, it was, had to be a white shirt. Couldn't be a pink shirt or any other color. It had to be white shirt, blue suit, and just a certain dress. And then as women back in the 80s, probably mid-80s, we started dressing like men, you know, with the yeah. dark suit and the little bow ties, you know, that we had. Yep. And then fortunately now there's a lot of flexibility around dress and acceptance around, yeah. you know, wearing color, wear, not wearing a blazer all the time, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I worked on... Um, uh, both at IBM and EDS, changing the dress code policy. At ah. IBM, it was we went to Casual Fridays first, and then, um, you know, and what did it mean to be casual, you know, um, and those kinds of things. And then when I was at EDS, believe, believe it or not, EDS ran data centers, right? And they had a rule that if you were a woman, you had to wear a skirt and you had to wear pantyhose. Yes. And so, well, pantyhose carry static electricity and data centers don't like static electricity. <laughs> and there were static electricity mats. At the, if you walk into the data center, then there were the static electricity mats that you'd have to step on and that would, you know, kill. And so I made the case that if we... Um, we could save money if we'd get rid of that stupid pantyhole law and, or guideline. Right. And then we wouldn't have to replace these static electricity mats every, you know, month or so. Get <laughs> so rid of the pantyhose. So you... We got rid of the pantyhose rule. Oh, man. <laughs> I think I did that about 15 years ago. Thank God. Maybe 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but uh... you think about those things, they sound ridiculous now. But there are things in today's workplace that will be ridiculous in. 15 years mm -hmm. also, yeah. right? Um, so probably the most prominent is, you know, flexibility of where you work and can you work mm -hmm. remotely and live live remotely, right? I think we're finally coming to grips with um, that you can be very effective and impactful in a remote work environment. Yeah, I, I think we've seen that uh, for sure. Um, talk about gender communication, how men and women communicate differently um you know and we do uh generally speaking not everybody fits into this you you are a person who speaks up i i am a person who speaks up and back in the 80s and 90s that wasn't always you know valued but it, yeah. there is it has to be done and in a in the right way uh but gender communication men and women what would you say to anyone that's listening about that that what you've observed and what you would say yeah, so, so, and there is a lot of research around this. So first of all, it's not good, it's not bad, it's just different, right? And it's probably better characterized as feminine and masculine, because, you know, there are some men that have feminine styles and some women who have masculine styles mm -hmm. and stuff. But, but um, if you just look at, um, you know, I, I said earlier that women tend to be sort of stronger at the relationship side and win-win, and, and that comes from early in our lives, we play relationship games. You play house, you play dolls. Like who's the boss in dolls? Nobody, right? Sometimes I'm the mommy, sometimes you're the mommy, right? There's no boss in dolls, right? It's very even. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when you get into a conflict, what happens? Your mother comes in and says, oh, Susan, it's time for you to go home. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, 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 you know, boys play different games, right? Yes. They, their dolls might be GI Joe soldiers and like they shoot each other, kill each other. Right. You know, right. they get in a fight and their mom comes in and says, hey, stop that. Yeah. And then they continue playing. Right. So these things play out later in how we communicate. And so women tend to um, be more solicitive of input. So, you know, there's, I got a problem. I know five people that might know something about this problem. I'm going to go ask all five and I'm going to take the best of input and I'm going to, you know, do that. And I'll have all these great five sources of input. Men think, you know, have problem, solve problem. And so, you know, he says, Hey, uh, I got a problem. I'm going to go ask this guy. He's the expert. He'll tell me what to do. I'll do it. And boom. And so when you are a woman and you go to a man and that's soliciting input, you know, um, you think you're asking for input that will be combined with other input to get to the answer. He thinks have problem, solve problem. Mm 
And so if you don't explain that, um, you know, you go to a guy, you ask them for help, they give you the help and you decide that's, that you're going to use a piece of that, but some other stuff. And he goes, wait a minute. Well, why did you ask me if you are not going to use what I tell you? Right. I mean, I'm going to not, not participate with you anymore. That is a marriage thing too, by the way. Yeah, (laughs) You asked me what to do. I told you, and you did something else. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and so, so you have, I'm a firm believer that men will never focus on gender communication differences. But if you, as a woman, focus on how you communicate differently, your ability to communicate, your effectiveness will go way, way up. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so I, in that scenario, I learned over time that I have to say, hey, Joe, I am going to collect input from four or five different people and try to get the best outcome and stuff. I think you're, you've got a lot of good insight here. What, what input do you have to me to use in the solution? Not how do I solve the problem, right? right? Um, and so how you ask uh, and the words you use really, really matter. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so I, I just found that that's, that's yeah, a, a good way. Yeah, you're setting expectations of him that, hey, I may or may not use your advice, but I would like your input. And then I'm going to analyze everything and say, okay, I'm going to decide which way to go. And you need to know that it may not be your way, but I, I would appreciate yes. your input, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 A couple more questions, um, you know, kind of as we wrap up, you've got a 33 year old daughter that I understand has just, um, you know, has a a management role now. And she Mm -hmm. asks you for advice, any stories there of what you would, you know, what you would tell her. She's probably my target audience in this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so my daughter is, um, works for NOAA. So, um, and she's a marine scientist. And so, you know, NOAA is an acronym for uh, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Association. Okay. So it's a, mm-hmm. a federal government um, agency. Yeah. Part, part of the Department of Commerce. Um, and so she, you know, recently, I'll just give um, a, a good example. So she took this management position, her first one, um, she had to hire, um, a position. And so, you know, a government, you always, um, do team-based interviews. So you establish the interview team, get the candidates through, blah, blah, blah. And so she thought for sure, this one candidate was the best fit for the job. In fact, if she didn't have to follow procedure, she would have just hired this one person. Mm-hmm. And, um, as it turned out in the interviews, um, that person, bombed with all the interview team and another person who she knew who was convinced that this person was not a good fit was a self-serving kind of personality etc um and the interview team loved that person and so she was at a had a quandary was do i hire the person i know can do the job or do i hire the team recommendation because the repercussion of going against the the interview team is they're not going to accept going to help you again. Right. right. They're yeah. Not gonna, yeah. And so um, the advice I gave her was y- you need to call both candidates and find out what happened. So candidate one the, that bombed with the interview team, what happened? Did you have, did he have a bad day? What, you know, what, what, what were the circumstances around there? And then that is information the interview team needs to know. And so um, and then candidate two, which the interview team loved, who she thought was too self-serving, um, and her data point on that was four or five years old. Um, and I said, hey, look, man, a lot of things happen in four or five years. Do you want me to hold you accountable to something you did four or five years ago or the way you behaved four or five years ago? And um, she's like, well, I was yelling, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, so is this person, right? right? I mean, you have to sort of, get there. And it turned out, you know, that indeed in the last five years, this person had gotten married, had a child, you know what, grown up, you matured very differently, right? Yeah. Now. And um, so, you know, so it was extra work and stuff, but I think, you know, recruiting as a leader, recruiting is one of the most important responsibilities you have. Mm -hmm. And you need to spend time um, 
planning for your team development, your openings, your rotations, um, and and always be recruiting. I'm always recruiting, whether I have a job or not. I might have a job in two months. Who knows? We're in the middle right. of the great resignation, right? You, yeah. you might have. Yeah. So if you're recruiting all the time, then um, you've got you've you got sort a, of you a, have a pool people you have a pool on the to bench, draw from. right? Right. Yeah, you can. Yeah. yeah. And from. so when people look at it the way she was looking at it at the time, um, as it's oh my God, it's a lot more time. I'm time dependent. I've got to get this. The time is worth the investment. Yeah, it is. Because right. uh, if I've made a mistake in my, I've made mistakes in my career, but one is hiring the wrong people for the wrong job and living in denial that, well, you know, if they just, if I just coach them better, they'll do better. It's just, they're not a fit, you know? Yeah. And you have yeah. to really make sure you hire well, that's for sure. But um, yeah. Yeah. well, as we close out here, I have one more question for you. Um, in my research of you, I make sure I look at a lot of different places and I couldn't help but notice that you have a collection of Barbie dolls. <laughs> yes. Tell us about that collection of Barbie dolls. They don't, they did not look like the Barbie dolls I had as a child. All of, so, so Mattel, which makes Barbies, um, had uh, for a period of time, a collection of robotic engineer Barbies. Mm. And so I've got all of them and, um, and they are all of, you know, um, I have a white one, a Hispanic one, a black one. They're all mm -hmm. of different race, uh, um, and I'm very proud of my Barbie dolls because they represent women in tech and a modern twist on, uh, you know, which I would say Barbies sort of, you know, were not that, um, flattering of women, no. professional women for, uh, for no. the longest time. And so I really give a lot of credit to companies who, you know, are willing to change their product and really willing to. Um, get out there. So, uh, so yeah, so yeah, they're cool. And, and when I can find them, they are also, you know, I always at, we're at holiday time, but I, I get the, the card off the Christmas tree, you know, whether mm -hmm. today, this year to be at the YMCA for needy kids. And I always pick a girl that would be of that age that you would play with Barbies. And she always gets a robotic engineer Barbie. <laughs> oh, good, good. Yeah, the ones so, I had, I mean, were yeah. like swimsuit models. I mean, she had Ken, you know, and then Skipper, <laughs> you know. I mean, and we'd yeah. Playhouse and Barbies and all that. But no, they did not look like that. And I don't even know she if she had a job back in the 60s. But <laughs> those were the Barbies <laughs> I had. She looked like she had a lot of fun. I had the Barbie car and everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a, um, a space astronaut Barbie. Cool. <laughs> so, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yep. Well, uh, Kim, it's been great to host you here. Congratulations on a fantastic career. Very impressive. And uh, thanks for uh, allowing me to talk to you today on Leading She. Thanks, Susan. I really had a great time. Good. Thanks for me everything too. you're doing to promote women and yeah. advancement of their careers. Thank you. I know it's important to you, too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders.